Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. the book of Exodus together. If you've been with us, you know that we've come to the point now in Exodus where God is bringing a series of plagues upon the Egyptians, upon the Pharaoh, and upon the the false gods of Egypt. God is preparing to deliver His people through His appointed deliverer Moses, but before He delivers His people from their slavery there in Egypt and takes them on their journey to the promised land, He is bringing judgment on the land that they are in. And so we've looked and seen how God has already started that judgment uh, through the first plague where the Nile turned to blood. We talked about how, among other things, that was judgment on the Egyptian god Hopi, who was believed to be the the god of the Nile. The the, the Nile was actually the bloodstream of the Egyptian gods. And, And this was judgment against that false god, along with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Then last week we looked at the second plague, the swarm of frogs. We talked about how frogs might not seem very intimidating to us, but that actually represented one of the goddesses of the Egyptians, the goddess Hecht. They believed she was the goddess of fertility, and so God brought judgment on that land through bringing death and calamity through the symbol of one of the false gods that they worshipped. And today we'll continue to see how God will bring judgment against Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and against the false gods that they worshipped. As we look at the next two plagues, we're going to look at the third and the fourth plague today as we look at this passage together. And So if you will stand out of reverence for God's Word as I read this text for us this Lord's Day. And this is what the Scripture says to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And they were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me, or else I will not let, or else if you will not let my people go, Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarm of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let Pharaoh cheat, not cheat again by not letting us go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the people. Not one remained, 
But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. If you would, pray with me. Father, as we read yet again about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, we ask that our hearts will not be hardened towards Your Word today. But Lord, that You might soften even the, the coldest, hardest heart among us, that we might respond in repentance and faith to the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you like to collect and study rare things. You may know that one of the, the rarest things in the world is a coin. It was minted in 1933. It's a double eagle $20 gold coin and it's one of the rarest objects in the entire world. There were half a million of these that were printed initially, but because of changes in the economy with the Great Depression and changes in the currency system, they decided rather than to release these into circulation, they would melt them down into gold bars. And so half a million coins then were taken and melted down, but a few didn't make it. A few of them were actually stolen. They were later recovered, all but one, and that one remained a mystery for years until it ended up in the hands of a king in Egypt, King Farouk. King Farouk loved to collect coins. In fact, he was rather obsessed with coins, and this being the rarest coin in the world, he had to have it in his collection, but his reign would not last long. He was deposed from power in 1952, and at that point, uh, the U.S. authorities wanted to confiscate the coin, uh, but it vanished once more, and it wasn't seen again for over 40 years until it surfaced in New York in the hands of a British coin dealer. Uh, that coin dealer then entered into a legal dispute with the United States government, and while they disputed who rightfully owned the coin, the coin was actually taken just down the road to Fort Knox here in Kentucky, uh, where it remained until the decision was made that that coin would be sold at auction and that the proceeds would be divided between the government and between this coin dealer. And so that coin went to auction in 2009 and it sold for almost twice what any coin had ever sold for before it. $7.6 million. $7.6 million was the value placed on a $20 gold piece because of its rarity and because of its uniqueness. $7.6 million. Now I want you to imagine for a second this morning, and I realize it would be imagining, that somehow a 1933 double eagle $20 gold coin made its way into your possession. What would you do with that coin? <laughs> Before you sold it, how would you treat it? Would you throw it in your pocket with the rest of your change and your keys? Uh, would you throw it in your house wherever you put your loose change? Maybe you have a, a cup or a tray or something where you put that. Would you, would you put it in your car there in your ashtray with other loose change? If you were starting a game with someone and they said we need a coin toss, would you say, oh, wait, wait, I've got a real unique gold uh, coin here we can toss. Now, you wouldn't do any of those things. You would want to secure it, to prepare to sell it. Uh, you would value it. You would, you would hold on to it. It would be your most prized possession because of its value. Now, again, I said that would be imagining. I'm assuming nobody in this room this morning has a $7.6 million coin in your pocket. But I hope you know if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, you have something more valuable. You have something of greater worth than the rarest coin in the world. And we know it is of the greater worth because of what God's Word says to us where actually He compares our faith to gold. We read in 1 Peter that we have something far more precious than gold in our faith in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that today? Do you understand that you have something in your possession that is of greater worth 
that is of eternal worth. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 13. He said again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus says, The kingdom is worth more than that. It's worth more than anything on this earth. Our faith is of greater value. But let me ask you a question today. Do you treasure it as such? If you had that coin, think of how you would treat it. You have something more valuable than that in your faith. But how do you treat that? The reality is for so many of us this morning, we treat our faith in Christ kind of like we treat that loose change. We just go digging through that change drawer when we're out of options, don't we? <laughs> I don't have any more. Ca- I better go find see what I've got in the change drawer. Well, we don't think about it. We just kind of neglect it. We set it off to the side. It's there if we need it. So often, that's exactly how we treat our faith in Christ. And yet, friends, I want us to be reminded as we continue to study through the book of Exodus together, as we come to this section where God is bringing judgment upon judgment on man and sin, I want us to be reminded of the great value of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That the great value of the faith that is in our possession. Every time you open up God's Word, you should be reminded of the value that you have in Christ. And you can be reminded of that by asking a series of questions that I want us to ask this morning about this text. You can ask these questions uh, of any passage you're reading. In fact, you might find this helpful just in your, your regular Bible study and Bible reading. Well, you can start by asking the question of a text, what do I learn about God? What, what does this text teach me about who God is, about God's character, about the attributes of God? What is God revealing about Himself through this passage? Through these plagues we read about today, a, a swarm of gnats and a swarm of flies, what in the world does that teach us about God? That's the first thing we'll look at. And the second question you can ask then is, is, what does this passage teach us about the saving work of God? We've talked so often as we've studied God's Word together about how the Gospel is not just limited to one little section in the New Testament, the Gospel is throughout the Scripture. We see the saving work of God throughout the Scripture. And so we should ask ourselves as we're reading the Bible, what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about His saving work? We've seen the big picture of that in Exodus. We see the Gospel here. God sends a deliverer to rescue His people from their slavery and take them to the Promised Land. That that is the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that's exactly what's taking place in Exodus. But we'll look even more specifically about what we see about God's saving work here in this passage. And then last, a question of application. What What might God be calling us to do as a result of this passage? You should always ask yourself that as you're reading the text. Well, what do I need to do How do I need to respond? And so let's begin with that first question. What do we learn about God in this text today? Point one there in your outline. We we learn, we are reminded that God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. We could really make that the first point of any sermon because that's what we're reminded of over and over again through His Word. I've mentioned that many times. I'll continue to mention that because it's so important, especially in the context of Exodus. Exodus, the context here, is God establishing His authority. He's the one with true authority. Pharaoh believes himself to be God. The one true God says, no, I am sovereign. I am powerful. I'm the true God. And He will show him that. He'll show all of Egypt that through these plagues. He is showing once again through the third and fourth plague his, his sovereignty, His control, how He can work miraculously to bend nature, to do whatever He desires it to do, even to bring judgment upon this land and upon this people. And we're reminded here of His sovereignty specifically as we walk through this text. Notice there in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now notice what God does here. God could have easily said, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff 
and this swarm of gnats will come upon the land. But specifically, he says, tell him to strike the dust of the earth, the ground. That, that, that's significant. Why is it? Why is it that God tells Aaron to, to strike the dust of the earth that it becomes gnats? Can, can you remember anywhere else in the Scripture where God does something from the dust of the earth? Where, where God does something from the dirt, from the ground? You'll recall, you go to the book of Genesis where God is creating Adam, the first man. He creates him from the, the dust of the ground, the dust of the earth. And then the Scripture says He breathes life into him. And so this plague force then stands as a contrast of what God did back in creation. In fact, all of the plagues really stand as a contrast to what God does in creation. In Genesis, He is creating and in essence, in Exodus, he is uncreating and bringing judgment on them. Well, we'll look at that more as we go through more of the plagues. But for now, I hope you see just this picture of the sovereignty of God. That God from the dirt can create life. And God from the dirt can create death and bring judgment. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. What can you do with dirt? How many times have you turned on the television to some type of illusionist or magic show and the magician came out and said, you know, I'm really going to just, just overwhelm you today. You're not going to believe this. I'm going to do something with dirt. How many of you walk out in the backyard where your kids are playing in the dirt and say, oh my, look at what you've done with dirt. That's amazing. You're going to be an artist. You're, going to be an, you're, you're just gifted there. Well, what do we do with dirt? We get dirty. We get messy. Well, we don't create. Now, I understand you constructing, you moved our and all this thing. But just dirt in and of itself, we don't think of it as being the most valuable material, do we? But what do we see here? God is sovereign over the dirt and that He can create a man out of dirt and He can create judgment out of dirt that's going to come now against the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And you'll notice what the text tells us here. For the first time we see this is something the magicians of Egypt could not do. Verse 18, that they couldn't do it. The previous two plagues, the magicians, kind of these sorcerers, these, these priests of these false gods, they were able in some way to mimic what God had been doing. So you remember the first plague, God turns the Nile and all the water in Egypt to blood. And then the Scripture says the magicians are able to come and, and they turn water to blood too. Now where they got water that wasn't blood already, I have no idea. And even if they did it, it could have been sleight of hand, it could have been trickery, but the, but the picture there is that they're able to mimic it and the same with the second plague. God brings frogs, they're covering literally everything, and the Scripture says the magicians are able to do that too again. How were they able to do that if there's already frogs covering everything? I don't know, but we've talked about in those first two plagues about what they couldn't do. They couldn't turn the Nile back into clean water. They couldn't remove the frogs from the land. They, they did not have the ability to do that. And now we see they don't even have the ability to mimic this third plague, which reminds us of something. It reminds us of God's sovereignty in that He limits even those who stand in opposition to Him. That these magicians may have bore the names of false gods of Egypt, but make no mistake about it, these magicians were tools of the enemy himself, the great serpent. There's no coincidence that, that Pharaoh was represented by the serpent itself. We've talked about this. That, that all of these false gods they worshipped in essence, we're just agents and tools of the great enemy, Satan himself. And what we're reminded of in this text today is that God is sovereign even over the enemy. Now hear that. God is sovereign over Satan. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Because the reality is our theology of the power of Satan is usually more informed by a Bugs Bunny cartoon than it is about the, them by the Scripture. I'm sitting there sounding like Bugs Bunny trying to say it. We usually have that picture of, well, you got the little you know, angel on one shoulder, 
the little devil on the other shoulder, and they're just kind of going back and forth, in and out of our ears. That, that's the way the cartoons teach us. And if we're not careful, <clears throat> that's exactly how we tend to think about the enemy. We tend to think about the enemy as if you know we kind of got God, well, He's good, and Satan, He's bad, and there's just kind of this back and forth in our life between the two. And yet, the Scripture says no. Even the enemy himself, his power, is limited by the sovereign hand of God. And we see the limits here on his power and that now these magicians can't even recreate or mimic the calamity, the suffering that God is bringing on the land through this swarm of gnats. Philip Ryken reminds us of it this way as he speaks of this text. We're reminded that Satan cannot create. He can only destroy. Satan cannot redeem. He can only be condemned. Satan cannot love. He can only hate. Satan cannot be humble. He can only be proud. And as we look to Pharaoh and we look to the Egyptians and their gods, they share these same characteristics, don't they? That those magicians and their mimicking and then being able to come in and, and, and do some of these plagues, they're just bringing further judgment. That they can't create, they can only destroy. Uh, Pharaoh here, he can do nothing to redeem God's people or even his people. He just brings condemnation on himself and on them through his wickedness. And he certainly cannot love. You see this wicked king continue to grow and grow in the hardness of his heart and the hatred that he has. And certainly we don't see any humility in Pharaoh, but only pride, even up to the end believing that he truly is more powerful than God and ultimately it leads to his demise. What we see here is that God is sovereign over creation, the dust of the earth. He is sovereign even over the enemy and the enemy's powers. And, and also, he is sovereign over these false gods and goddesses that the Egyptians are worshiping. And you might ask the question, why gnats? Kind of like we ask, well, why frogs? I realize that gnats are annoying. I'm guessing none of us in this room, our kids don't have pet gnats. You know, that's not something you want in your house. And so you can probably imagine if there was a swarm of gnats where they're covering the, the land and they're as plentiful as the dirt on the ground, that would be quite an annoyance. But there's more going on here than just an annoyance to the Egyptians. God, again, is bringing condemnation on the false gods of Egypt. In this case the Egyptian god Geb. Geb was believed to be the, the Egyptian god who was the god over the dust of the ground, over the dirt itself. And so the Egyptians would worship Geb because they believed that he was the one who would bring fruit from the land and produce from the land. So they would make sacrifices to him. They would worship him. They would trust in him for their crops. And so notice here, God is bringing judgment on the Egyptians and on their false gods by, again, showing them that He is the one who's truly powerful by bringing these, these gnats from this dirt. We don't know the exact species of what this was, but indications were that this was a bug sort of more like lice for us today. And in the Egyptian culture in ancient Egypt, these, these little gnats, these lice, they would actually burrow into nostrils and into ears of animals and of people. And so as you just imagine that, you can imagine just the calamity that God is bringing here to the people of Egypt. And as He's doing it, you see the magicians, not only they're not able to recreate it, but notice what they say about it in verse 19. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, well, well this is the finger of God. <laughs> Now, now we can read that and think, oh, wait, you know, now the magicians are having a change of heart. Now, now the magicians are starting to realize this is the one true God. This is the hand of God at work. And we can begin to think, well, they're, they're beginning to turn here. But when you look at the language, you realize that they are still not confessing who the one true God is. In reality, we, we could translate this passage to have the, the magician saying, there's a higher power at work. There, there's, there's some type of God out there. There's some generic God, Sam, some, some 
ambiguous God, some, some God we don't know, some higher power, some something out there who's doing this. Simply put, they're acknowledging a higher power, but they don't have any saving faith here. There's no repentance on the part of the magicians, just an acknowledgement that some type of God has done this. And friends, I think there's something for us to apply there. Because that is the spirituality of our day today. Everybody wants to believe in some type of higher power. Everybody wants to believe in some type of God. Most people do. You look at surveys, even today, as we look at the godlessness of our culture, even today, that the majority of the people in our nation believe in some type of God, some type of higher power. But they don't know who that God is. And what we need to be reminded of today is that God has entrusted to us who that God is, that we might in turn go out and tell the world who that God is. That it is not sufficient for them just to know a higher power exists. Recognizing a higher power will not save you. Recognizing that there is a God will not save you. The only thing that will save you is the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who came that we might have life and might have it abundantly. He came and said, here's how you can know who God is. And here's how you can go back into the garden in essence. All the way back in creation, God establishes this garden with Adam and Eve. But when they sin, they have to leave. But God says to them then, a Redeemer's coming. And this Redeemer's going to crush the head of the serpent. And this Redeemer then will make it possible for you and I to enter back into fellowship with God. And so just believing in some sort of God out there, just believing in an afterlife, those things don't save us. And yet we live in a culture where if we're not careful, we join the voice of the culture in pretending as if that's okay. Go to a funeral for anybody. Go to a funeral for somebody who was an avowed atheist. Go for a, to a funeral for someone who said they didn't believe in God and you will still hear people say what? Well, they're in a better place now. Well, well they're, with, they're with God now. They're, they're okay now. That, that, that is what we long to. That's what we, we want to imagine and we want to believe and yet the Scripture tells us otherwise. And yet we have this longing to the point that I was listening to a, a radio program just this last week uh, Dr. Albert Moeller at Southern Seminary does a daily radio broadcast called The Briefing where he talks about the news and the events of the day and, and just this last week some of you may have heard it he was talking about a recent study that showed that, that even atheists believe that there's some type of heaven <laughs> think about that they're convinced there is no God, and on this earth they'll adamantly say there's no heaven and hell, and yet the closer they get to death, they believe, or they want to believe in some type of afterlife. And those who don't believe that that afterlife exists in this study, it shows they're just so miserable. And so they're trying to escape that misery with this pleasant thought, well, surely there's something out there. And the good news of the gospel is there is something out there. And the good news of the gospel is we don't have to wonder about it or imagine it or go make something up about it. We can read God's Word and read clearly what He says. And this is what He tells us. That in the garden, man sinned. What was their sin? They disobeyed God. Adam didn't beat his wife in the garden. Eve didn't cuss her husband in the garden. They didn't get in a fist fight in the garden. What happened? They're standing there by a tree that God had said to them, you should not eat of the fruit of this tree. Why did God say that? Because God was reminding Adam and Eve that ultimately He was God. That He had ultimate dominion. That they were under His, his care. Under His creation mandate. So there in the garden He said, you can have anything you want here, but don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave His people a boundary then. Just like today, friends, God gives us boundaries, doesn't He? That the Christian life is not a ticket to go do whatever you want. 
Salvation is not a, a get out of hell free card. You know, just go. You know, you're saved. Live however. No, God gives boundaries to His people. And so in the garden, God gives a boundary to Adam and Eve. They rebel against Him. They sin against Him. And what does God do? He then removes them from the garden. And now this separation exists between God and man. And friends, that separation still exists today. Our, our sin separates us from a holy God. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned, how little you've sinned. If I put two cups of water up here this morning, and I put just a, a drop of poison in one of them, and I just filled the other one with poison. Would you want to drink either one of them? No, no, because they're both, they're both toxic. They're both going to kill you. It doesn't matter if it's full of poison or it's one. That doesn't matter if how your sin nature has played itself out is that you're just the most rebellious person in our community. Or if you, you pretend or people think you've got it all together, but you know in your heart and your mind there is something in your life where you don't have it all together. You have sin. The Scripture says we all have sin and the scripture says that the wages of that sin is death meaning we deserve eternal separation from God in a very real hell where we pay the consequence we pay the penalty of our sin for eternity under the wrath of God but the scripture tells us that God demonstrates his love and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us and that's the good news of the gospel Jesus knew no sin Jesus never sinned. Jesus did not deserve death for sin, and yet He got on the cross and He died in your place and in my place. Just as that passage we said, that Matt read this morning says, Romans chapter 10, it's not enough just to know this in our mind. It's not enough just to sit in church this morning and hear somebody talk about it. We have to respond to it. Romans 10, if we confess that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. And all who call in the name of the Lord can be saved. God has not left us and said, just believe in a higher power and you'll be okay. God has said, if you will confess Christ is Lord and believe in your heart, I raised Him from the dead, you can be saved saved that is the God we are reading about this morning in this text and he tells us exactly what his saving work looks like point two there in your outline part of that saving work is that God then sets his people apart and we see that as we look to this fourth plague here just like the previous plagues God brought that swarm of gnats and the Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He wouldn't, he wouldn't listen. And so God continues to bring further suffering. But notice what He does here. As we go through the plagues, you're going to begin to see a, a pattern, a sequence here. The first plague, God told Moses, go down to the river and meet Pharaoh. That's where Pharaoh would go to worship these false gods, like the gods of the Nile. And God said to Moses, now go down there and meet him as he's going to the river. But then in the second plague... God told Moses just to go give a warning. And then the third plague, what we saw, is there wasn't even a warning. God just brought the judgment. Well, now we're going to see that, that same sequence here. So plague four is like plague one. God tells Moses, I want you to go down there to the river where Pharaoh is likely going to, to worship his false gods in Egypt. And I want you to tell him, let my people go. And if he won't let my people go, tell him I'm going to send a swarm of flies. Now again, for us, this, this again, it's, it's like gnats, it's annoyance. You know, we don't have pet flies, we don't like flies. You, know, if you get flies in the house, you get out fly swatters. There's few insects that have an instrument of destruction named after them. Fly swatter. Nobody likes flies, we want to get rid of the flies. Imagine a swarm of flies. Imagine this room being filled with flies. Imagine flies covering everything. And that's a terrible thought. But also, this is judgment by God against the false gods of Egypt. And this God's name you've probably heard of. Beelzebub. Beelzebub was an Egyptian god whose name meant, it could be translated as, the Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub was believed to be the protector and the guardian of the land from natural disasters. And so they would make sacrifices to Beelzebub, trusting that Beelzebub could hold back anything that might come and wipe out their crops. Anything that might come and just bring great calamity to their land. And so notice what God does here. 
not only is He going to come and wipe out their crops and wipe out their land, He's going to do it with flies, which incidentally, the God who was supposed to protect their name was called the Lord of the what? Flies. God is bringing His judgment against Beelzebub and in doing it again, He's bringing judgment against the great enemy Himself for that name would stick with the enemy all the way to Luke chapter 11 where Jesus has cast out demons and he is accused by religious leaders of his day of casting out those demons by the power of Beelzebub. <laughs> Their accusation to Jesus is, oh, you're not from God, you're from the devil himself and he's empowered you through Beelzebub, this false god of the land who is truly an agent of the enemy. And so God continues to bring this judgment but, but notice something else we see unique in this fourth plague. Here God says, verse 22, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell. And we talked about this in the first couple of plagues. There's nothing in the text that indicates to us whether God brought that plague against His people also or whether He didn't. I lean towards He didn't, that those plagues were just against the Egyptians. But there's nothing in the text in the first three plagues that tell us that. But now in the fourth plague, we read specifically God saying here that He's going to make a boundary. He's going to put this umbrella of protection around His people, the Hebrews, so that when these swarm of flies come and start destroying all the crops and destroying everything, they're not going to affect His people. He says He is going to set His people apart. And friends, that, that is a picture of what God does through the Gospel. He sets us apart. And in fact, that's what the word holy means. To be set apart. And it's a picture we see throughout the Scripture. So again, going back to the garden. He, he, he puts a boundary between Adam and Eve and him. Because why? Because they once dwelled in fellowship with him without sin. But once sin entered the picture, there had to be this, this division. And in order for them to come back in the garden, in order to have that fellowship with God, they need to be then set apart from the world and the sin of the world. And so we see this picture of boundaries then throughout the Scripture. You come to Noah and the ark. Who was saved by the ark? Those who were on the inside. Who was destroyed during that flood? Everybody else. It didn't matter if you were holding on to the ark, you were destroyed. It didn't matter if you thought, well, I'll just build a smaller boat to pull on behind them, no, you were destroyed. The only ones saved in the flood were those who were within that boundary that God put in place for them. And that's exactly what happens here in Egypt. The only ones who are saved from these plagues ultimately are His people. And that's going to lead us up to that tenth plague where we see very clearly what saves His people. They're going to mark the doorpost of their homes with the blood of an unblemished lamb. And without that blood, there is no saving. Without that blood, there's only death. And we'll talk more about that, but hopefully you see the point here that God is setting His people apart. And that's exactly what He does in the Gospel through the New Testament. John chapter 1. But to all who did receive Him, Jesus says, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will or of the flesh, nor the will of the man, but of God. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus said, not everyone is a child of God. Now think about how often you hear the world referred to as God's children. Now think about how often you hear that, that mindset that, oh, well, but we're all God's children. Jesus said no. You become a child of God through receiving Him, through believing in His name. So it's not sufficient just to believe in some ambiguous God, some higher power. We must trust in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If we do that, then we become a child of God. Not because we were born into a Christian family. He said not because of your birth. So you're not, you're not saved because you were raised in a home where your mom and dad believed and trusted in Jesus. None of us are going to stand before God one day and say, well, look up my family name. That, that should be sufficient. 
It's not based on your parents. It's not based on your family. Not, your, not the blood. Nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man. It's not based on your works. And hear that. I am so concerned, not only in my life, but in your life and in our lives, that somehow we still default to this position that we are saved by our efforts. And so again, you go to the funeral home, what do you hear? Well, they were such a good person. And we say that as if that's going to save us. Friends, our good works do not save us. I'm going to die one day. I'm probably going to be laying right here. And when you come see me dead, and my wife and my kids are here around me, don't come up and say, he was such a good man. Because they know I'm not. They can tell you everything I've done. And if they don't know it, the couple behind them, Kim, my mom and dad. And then don't come and say, oh, he was such a good boy. Oh, he did so many good things. Oh, I remember when he did this. Because the reality is, I am a messed up person. And the reality is, you are a messed up person. And on your best day, in your best efforts, you're not going to turn the head of a holy God who's going to look at you and say, well, that really impressed me today. Friends, the only thing we can cling to, the only hope we have, and oh, what a hope it is, is that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I hope my family will tell you that. Oh, good? No, he was a miserable, wretched man. But he was saved by the blood of Jesus. I mess up every day. But I cling to the cross. That's what we sang about. Did you hear what we were singing? Think about those words as we sing them. It's by the blood of the Lamb that we're saved. There is a fountain filled with blood. Amen? And it's not yours. And it's not mine. Because we're not going to show up before God and He says, well, let me measure your works real quick. And thank You, Lord, that that's not the case. Because we would all fall short. But what we're reminded of in God's Word is that He sets us apart based on His grace and His mercy and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that is the hope we have. And if you don't have that hope this morning, you truly are hopeless. There is nothing else you can cling to. There is nothing else you can hold on to. And the Scripture says to you, and it says to me, let go and abandon it and run to the cross of Jesus. And when you do, be covered in the blood of Jesus. Just like God's people there, these Hebrews in ancient Egypt, they, they are covered by the grace and the mercy of God. The calamity comes to everyone around them, but they are protected and they are covered to point us towards the great day of salvation we would experience. There's a real God. And there's real consequence for sin. And Scripture says real judgment will come. And we should take no joy in those who will be judged under God's wrath. But we should take great joy in the salvation that He offers us through His Son. He sets us apart just as He set the ancient Hebrews apart. So what do we do about this? A word of application, point three. A reminder to us then. God calls us to an uncompromising faith. And so we are to walk with the Lord in an uncompromising way. We do not negotiate with sin or the enemy. The debt is paid. And so friends, a reminder to us. Don't compromise. Look at what we see here. Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, verse 25. And Pharaoh now, we see him. Perhaps we can begin to see, imagine an illusion that he's somehow repentant. We know he's not. But, but I do believe God's breaking him. And as he's watching the land of Egypt, that the Scripture tells us, is in utter ruin. And as he sees his, his priest of these false gods can do nothing to help, he calls once again to Moses and Aaron. And he says, okay, Go make your sacrifice. You remember that? That was the initial request. They came before Pharaoh and they said, the Lord God has us, 
wants us to come to you and say we, we need to take his people three days away and they need to make a sacrifice. And so now Pharaoh brings that back up and he says, that's fine, that's fine. Go make your sacrifice. Except notice he puts a, a condition here. Go make it within the land. Now, now some of us might read this and say, well, why is that such a big deal? Make a sacrifice outside of Egypt, make a sacrifice in Egypt. I mean, the point is you're making a sacrifice, right? But, but notice how uncompromising Moses is here. But Moses said it would not be right to do so. Now he goes on to tell Pharaoh about how this is going to be an insult to the Egyptians and how they might try to slay the Hebrews as a result. But, but ultimately what he says to him, verse 27, is we must go a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord because the Lord our God has told us to do this. Moses here is not willing to negotiate with Pharaoh. And friends, that is a reminder to us that we need not negotiate with sin. Because so often what we do is we see, well, God has this standard of holiness and righteousness, and I'm messed up and I've got all these issues down here, so we'll just kind of meet in the middle here, you know? I'll stop doing these things, but I'm going to hold on to this thing, and we've got good reason. I mean, it's not hurting anybody, and it makes us feel good, and we love it, and our heart would never deceive us, and do what your heart tells you to do, and it feels good, and everybody says it's fine, the whole culture says it's fine, so it's okay to do this thing, but I'll just stop doing these things. So God, are you happy now? And every day, we go into this compromise. And we might not do it that way, chances are we don't. But deep down in our hearts, that's what we do. I'll abandon these sins, but I'm going to hold on to this sin. And, and just as a reminder, friends, if God's Word clearly tells you to stop doing something or not to do something, and you continue to do that, then you are in sin. You know the right thing to do. You're choosing not to do it. That, that is sin. Greater song, that, that, that is sin. And God calls us to an uncompromising faith and what that means is He calls us to complete obedience. Listen to what we read in 1 Peter about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope <clears throat> fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the way we do this is by focusing on Christ. We don't set our hope on this world, and we certainly don't set our eyes on how messed up we are and how sinful we are and all these other disappointments and all these other sufferings. He says, look, set your hope on the revelation that is to come. We sang it this earlier. Whether He returns or He calls me home, we're going to see Jesus one day. And so we put our hope in that. And then He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now think about that phrase. How... How needed that phrase is in the church today. What we so often talk about sin is this common struggle. Well, I sin, you sin, we all sin. Oh well, we, you know, nobody's perfect. Think of what it would be like in our Bible studies and our prayer times if rather than saying, you know, I'm struggling here. Oh man, I'm struggling. Oh yeah, we're all, we're all struggling there. Let's pray about that struggle. If somebody just opened up the Word and said, okay, well, let's pray that we're not conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. When we didn't know the Gospel, when we didn't know the grace that Jesus offered, let's not live there anymore. Let's live now like this. But as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Friends, what God's Word is calling us to today is perfection. Anybody want to try that? No, what God's Word is calling us to today is to trust in a perfect Savior. And there's a difference. Believing you can save yourself versus trusting in the One who's already saved you. And then once we trust in Jesus, we are to strive towards holiness Trusting in the one who is holy. And we're not to negotiate with sin. We're not to compromise with it. And if that is our attitude this morning, 
then friends, we may not understand the gospel at all. I'll leave you with this. Words of old from Charles Spurgeon about this text. God's demand is not that His people should have some little liberty, some little rest in their sin, no. But that they should go right out of Egypt. Christ did not come into the world merely to make our sin more tolerable, but to deliver us right away from it. He did not come to make hell less hot, or sin less damnable, or our lust less mighty. But to put all these things far away from His people and to work out a full and complete deliverance, Christ does not come to make people less sinful, but to make them leave off sin altogether. Not to make them less miserable, but to put their miseries right away and give them joy and peace in believing in Him. The deliverance must be complete, or else there should be no deliverance at all. The call to follow Christ is a call to follow Christ. It's not a call to go halfway. It's a call to go all in. It's a call to surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. And as you do that, to be covered and protected by the blood of Christ. And if you've yet to do that, the call for you this morning once again is to respond, to repent, and to believe. And so church, if you would stand together as I pray for us in this time of invitation today. Father God, we come to you in the name of Christ, clinging to the cross of Christ, covered by the blood of Christ. Father, I pray if anyone here is hoping in anything else to save them, God, that they would repent right now that Your Holy Spirit would empower them to call the name of Jesus. I pray, God, Father, for any of us that are considering sin or are involved in sin or unrepentant of sin, that we would abandon it and we would run away from it and that we would run to the cross of Jesus. I pray for those, Father, this morning that may be confused by all this. They may not understand it. They long for deliverance. But they don't know how that's achieved. Lord, would you, would you clarify in their heart and mind now the Gospel? Would you empower them to talk to other believers about the Gospel that they might rightly respond to it? And fathers, for other this morning, they're, they're just suffering. And they're hurting. And perhaps they're, they're confused and they don't understand why suffering has come in the way that it has. And, and Lord, they're just longing for you somehow to, to give them peace and to rescue them and to help them. Lord, would You remind us all that this world is not our home. And there is a day, You tell us in the book of Revelation, where there are no more tears and there's no more suffering and a new heaven and a new earth. And You set us apart for that when we trust in Christ. So help their trust to grow all the more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.